Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week we heard from the writer Andrew Keane about the importance of human agency and creative thinking in the digital age. This week we hear from a forensic psychologist who has just launched a bot that uses cognitive interview techniques to help individuals report workplace harassment. We spoke with many companies and the response kept being the same, which was, yes, harassment and discrimination are problems. Yes, there's a lot of talk about this in the media right now, but our company's amazing. So there was a sentiment that I kept saying is that harassment is something that other people do. And I think this insight makes sense because not enough people are talking about it. And so if you don't hear about the harassment in your company, how could you possibly know that you have a reporting or even a harassment issue? That's the voice of Julia Shaw, author of The Memory Illusion. She came into the FT recently to talk to me about her research into false memory and her plans to help companies detect and eliminate discrimination and harassment in the workplace. I'd like to start, Julia, with your academic research. You're an expert on false memories. Can you tell us what they are? Sure. So false memories are memories of things that never actually happened. Now, false memories can be partial, which means that we might get a detail wrong, maybe a color of something, or they can be large. So they can be entire events that never happened. Right. And you also have this concept of memory hacking. Can mm-hmm. you tell us about that? Yeah. So memory hacking is when you intentionally implant a false memory in someone else's brain. How do you do that? How do you do that? Well, that's what I have spent a long time doing. And it involves doing research, bringing people in and convincing them that they, in my case, for my research, experienced emotional events or committed crimes that never actually happened. Can you give us an example? How does that process work? So by asking leading questions, by essentially doing the what not to do of interviewing, you can lead people down a path which gets them to think that things that they're just imagining are actually pieces of memories. And if you essentially string someone along enough, they might actually start to believe that complex events happened that never actually took place. And are you performing these experiments on your students at UCL? The studies that I was doing, I was doing actually at UBC in Canada. And there I did one study in particular where I convinced 70% of my participants that they'd committed a crime that never happened. And what it really means is it's I'm not doing this just to see if it's possible. I'm actually doing this because it's really important to educate police officers and investigators on how fragile memory can be. And so understanding interviewing, you need to first see all the things that can go wrong and all the ways in which memory can go astray in order to then implement and understand best practices for interviewing. So what would the process for persuading me that I had committed a crime? To persuade you that you'd done something that you didn't, first you need trust, so you need to believe that I know something about you that you don't, or at least in in my studies, that's how I work with it. Then you need to succumb to social pressure where I say, no, no, I'm sure you did this thing. And you go, oh yeah, maybe I did, so you start being compliant. Then you need to start imagining things as they could have been. And by imagining pieces, what you're doing is you're probably drawing on real memories. You're drawing on real people, real places, real emotions. And what I'm encouraging you to do is to string those together in a way that never actually happened. And is this what advertising does in a way? It is implanting kind of false memories or false emotions or false beliefs in your head? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, associating things with one another that 
aren't really supposed to be associated or that weren't originally experienced as associated as a standard practice in advertising. So sort of the candy adverts where a little kid might be going up to grandma and grandma gives the kid a candy and there's sort of this nostalgic feel around the whole thing. What they're trying to do is they're trying to essentially implant a feeling so that next time you see that candy, you get warm, fuzzy feelings and you go, oh, it must be because I like this candy and I should probably buy it. And what's the spectrum of crimes you can convince people that they've committed? I mean, presumably you've never been able to persuade someone that they've actually committed murder. It's far lesser crimes than that, isn't it? Far lesser crimes than that. I mean, obviously within a university context and within a human context, there are also ethical boundaries and you need to be very careful to stay to scripted protocols and to make sure that things are ethically approved and debriefings are extensive, etc. But in my case, I convinced people that they assaulted someone with a weapon, which sounds worse than it might be. It's hitting someone with a rock because of a fight, then fighting someone, so getting in a physical fight, or stealing something. But the reason I was doing that again was to show how easy it is to do this so that ultimately we can take that kind of evidence into courtrooms, into legal contexts, and hopefully prevent them from happening in the future. What is the reaction of the students when you reveal to them that, in fact, you've just done this? The reaction is surprise. In fact, as one of the criteria, they have to be surprised. So they can't suspect that that's what I was trying to do. And I think that that trust element is really important, that they trust that I was getting them to recall something that maybe didn't happen. Memory is clearly very closely bound up with identity. So this raises all kinds of interesting questions. If your memory can be manipulated, then can you manipulate or mis? represent the identity of somebody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that we hack our own Facebook timelines and our own Twitter timelines all the time by filtering what we present. Because what we're doing by filtering the tweets that we post, by filtering the photos that we post, we're creating a a life story that when we go back over that timeline, we think that that's our complete life story, even though we know really that it's a filtered version. But if you look at something often enough and you curate your own life story in that kind of way, you might end up believing that that's actually what you've experienced and that those are your priorities. There's a great Kurt Vonnegut quote with regard to that, which is, we are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful what we pretend to be. Okay. Now, you're saying that this is often a big issue in court. I mean, do you appear in court as an expert witness? Yeah, I do. So I'm often asked to work for the defense. So when issues of memory come into question and there's a worry that maybe someone has brought forth evidence that either is low quality or where memory is the only issue. So essentially someone's come forward often with a historical allegation saying 20 years ago such and such happened. And if they didn't disclose to anyone at the time, if there's no other evidence, it can be very difficult to appreciate how high quality or potentially low quality this memory evidence is and what may have contaminated it. In your book, The Memory Illusion, you also point out that people can be swayed by photographs. When you stack that up against evidence, that people tend to think that someone is guilty if the photograph of them looks untrustworthy. That also implies a great degree of suggestibility as well, doesn't it? Well, it's bias. I think that humans are, or can be certainly, quite biased, both in terms of implicit bias and explicit bias. And certainly humans think that they're great at detecting whether someone is someone they should trust, so trustworthiness as it's referred to. Uh, And they're also great at thinking that they can detect lies, which they can't. So essentially our assumptions, our biases around deception and trustworthiness can really send us into bad spaces and inaccurate spaces and maybe not give the kind of credibility that we should to someone just because of how they look. Now, some other psychologists have criticized your work saying that there's a distinction that should be drawn between false memories and false beliefs. 
Can yeah. you tell us about that dispute? Yeah, so I shared my data with a few scientists and they recoded my data in line with other coding methodologies, which I had rejected at the time. It's a methodological dispute, really, where I still think that the distinction between false memories and false beliefs maybe isn't as clear as some other researchers argue it is. And so for me, I put those categories together. And certainly from a false confession standpoint, whether you believe that something happened, that you committed a crime, or you think that you, quote, remember it, might not really make much of a difference, especially when you're sitting there saying that you did it. So from a false confession standpoint, it's still what's called an internalized false confession, whether it's a belief or a memory. How many people do you think get convicted on the basis of false memory? Ooh, that's a really difficult question. I, very common, do you think, or quite rare? I think that in cases where memory is the only evidence, there is an increased likelihood that someone could be convicted wrongfully because of a false memory or part of a memory being false. But I still think that the bigger problem in the criminal justice system actually isn't false memories. It's not wrongful convictions. It's the opposite. It's seeing memories and assuming that they're false or wrong or somehow decayed, even though maybe a crime has been committed and that person should be convicted. The person just didn't have the resources to have good contemporaneous evidence that can lead to a conviction. I mean, this debate on human fallibility is incredibly interesting in the context of the discussion we're also having about algorithmic bias. If we think that the data can be poor and some of the algorithms are poorly designed, so we end up with biased results in AI systems that are providing advice on parole or sentencing decisions... What you're really saying is that humans can be fantastically biased in the ways that they also adjudicate these things. Absolutely. And I mean, AI is only as good as the people who create it as well. So, I mean, this is an issue in Silicon Valley right now is that, sure, there's issues around sexism, and that's an issue on a cultural level, but it's also an issue on a programming level because you're potentially not optimizing systems for women and the code that's underneath what we all interface with is possibly not going to be as good at addressing the concerns of huge parts of the population. That takes us very neatly on to your cognitive interview bot called Spot. Can you tell us how this came about? Yeah, so out of this background of studying interviews and how easy it is to mislead people by asking the wrong questions, and from studying highly emotional events like crime, I found that there is a huge body of research on a technique called the cognitive interview. Now, for about 30, 40 years maybe already, we've known that the best type of interview is one that's not leading, one that asks neutral, practical, open-ended questions, and that is, quote, going from an information-seeking point of view. So you're not trying to get a confession. You're not trying to go in with your biases and say, I know this happened, didn't it? Instead, you're making sure that the person who's being interviewed is giving you as many reliable details as possible. And so from that background, I met Phil Libin, who was involved with Evernote heavily. And so he's been working with memory and AI for a long time. And through him, I met my now co-founders. And this was in the middle of one of the big scandals last summer around harassment at work. And it became very clear that potentially there's a usefulness of automating this cognitive interview and making it more scalable and accessible to a much bigger group of people. And were you already developing this idea before the whole Me Too movement got going? Or is it coincidental that this has happened now? 
So we initially played with the ideas, understandably, of potentially creating a crime reporting tool. But crime is an incredibly broad issue. I mean, everything from bicycle theft to murder can be within that category. And the needs of the people who experience, witness as victims these kinds of situations are incredibly diverse, possibly more diverse than a more controlled space, which is like a workplace, for example, and a case like harassment. And it really seemed like the zeitgeist was there, that people both wanted to talk about harassment at work. So the Me Too, Time's Up, these kinds of movements. And maybe people were ready to listen. Okay. Now, when Spot asks questions, are these pre-programmed questions or is it using natural language processing to read the answers in effect and then suggest what the next question should be? Spot is a chatbot, which you use. Um, you can actually test it out at talktospot.com. You can go play with it if you want and see how it interacts. And what it does in terms of AI is it combines a general scripted chat, because that's actually conveniently what the cognitive interview is. The cognitive interview, as administered in the best case scenario by a human being, is someone who's sticking to the script. And someone who, the only time they deviate from the script, is asking meaningful follow-up questions. So that's exactly what our bot does, is it has standardized questions, which should be there, which have to be there. And then for the biggest free flow answer, it does natural language processing and it recognizes certain words or phrases and then it asks you follow-up questions based on that. So you produce a record of this conversation about the particular incident. What do you then do with that record? There are three things that happen when you use Spot. First, you chat with the bot, you go through the cognitive interview, it asks you all the relevant details about what happened. Second, it creates a securely signed timestamp PDF that you keep for yourself. Now, this is supposed to be contemporaneous evidence that's as strong as it can possibly be that you can have if you want to share it later or even just for yourself. Then, if you want, you can send a report, you can edit the report and send it anonymously as a third step to your employer. So that's currently the three steps. And beyond that, the sort of response and the ability for companies to actively do something with this information, that's a tool we're building right now. So we're building a tool for businesses to help deal with these incoming reports and better manage and streamline the process. And presumably as a forensic psychologist, you would say that the near contemporaneous quite clinical recording of these memories is going to ensure that their veracity is a lot higher than if you are rewriting your memories several months later with hindsight. I want people to have the strongest evidence they can possibly have. And the strongest evidence you can possibly have is something that was taken as close as possible to the time that you can prove was recorded at a certain time and that was elicited by asking the right questions. So that's what we've created. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Is it legally admissible, this evidence? We don't know because we've only existed for a month. But so far, all the lawyers we've spoken to, including the employment lawyer who we work with directly at Spot, they have said that there's no reason it wouldn't be. 
just like currently emails and WhatsApp texts and face. I mean, the things you see in courtrooms. Oh, my goodness. Be careful what you send to people. I mean, as soon as it's saved somewhere and someone has it on their end and might be able to screenshot it. That could end up in a courtroom if you're not careful. It's a recording used in a murder trial in America recently, wasn't it? There you go. There you go. So, I mean, right now, pretty much all of these things seem to be admissible if they're evidence. And we're specifically creating it to be useful as evidence. I mean, we're creating it so that you can start a conversation with your company. But if worse comes to worst, you could presumably take it into a court of law. But ultimately, we have to see how that goes down if it ever comes to that. So the user can, as you say, send it to the company anonymously via your platform. Do you then follow up with the company and chase that down? And if they take the accusation very seriously, is there a way for the company to respond to the person who is making the accusation? So right now, because the only tool we've launched so far is the recording and reporting tool, we don't yet have a way for companies to respond. But that is exactly what we're building right now. We're making a platform, a back end, where you can see reports that have come in. You can respond with questions that we've agreed are appropriate questions, also to safeguard you as a company. And then you can keep their anonymity intact and ask more questions. So find out more that can help you resolve the issue. So we think it's really important that companies are empowered and that employees are empowered to do something about this because it's really time for a revolution in reporting. It's really time for cultural change. And how popular has this service proven to be? I mean, how many people have been using it in the few weeks since the launch? So we've had many, many thousands of people at the website and we've had, and this is really exciting for us because we weren't sure if people would actually talk to a bot about something that's so sensitive, but we've had about, I think, 500 people as the latest figure who have used it in the last month. But those numbers seem to be increasing exponentially, which is really promising. And do you think people would, in some respects, prefer to talk to a bot about these emotionally very traumatic experiences, that it's uh, more kind of neutral interlocutor than an HR manager in your own firm? Certainly. So we did research on the background and on the the literature of harassment reporting. So actually right now, the main team at Spot, half of us are scientists. And so as scientists, we're of course curious to see what does the literature say on why people report, why they don't report, and what the consequences of reporting are. So what are, for example, the health consequences or stress consequences? And especially with regard to the barriers, one thing that we're seeing is that people often find it awkward to talk to a human being. Now, Spot is a bot, so that gets around that problem. People often don't trust that their HR person is on their side. Even with whistleblowing hotlines, people often don't use them. I mean, we know that whistleblowing hotlines are a complete failure. And that's, again, because people often don't trust that that is going to truly be anonymous and that that won't somehow negatively affect them. So these kinds of problems, combined with just the general problem of, am I really anonymous? We try to solve that with Spot by trying to break down those barriers. Do you think it could be used maliciously? I mean, could people who have an unpopular manager, could the employees gang together and target a particular manager? People can do that now. For one, that's probably an issue in itself. If you have a toxic work culture where people hate each other so much that they want to tear each other down, you should probably talk to your people. We're not solving malicious attacks, but just like anything else, whether it's an anonymous complaint you receive now, which a lot of companies have, well, should have certainly, procedures for, um, or you get a note under the door or someone comes and talks to you in person. You don't necessarily accept that blindly as the truth, but you probably do go in with an assumption of belief 
because it's really hard to report these things. And you start an investigation. And that's what it really comes down to is if it's found out that someone has been malicious, then you deal with that appropriately. Other than that, assume that because 97% of people don't report when harassment happens, assume that they've overcome tremendous barriers to get to you. And you should really take them seriously. What's the reaction of the companies been? Have you been speaking to a lot of them about the service? Yeah, it was actually an interesting evolution because we started by talking to companies before we decided to go the other way around and first make it free to use by anyone. We spoke with many companies and the response kept being the same, which was, yes, harassment and discrimination are problems. Yes, there is a lot of talk about this in the media right now. But our company is amazing. So there was a sentiment that I kept saying is that sort of harassment is something that other people do. And I think this insight makes sense because not enough people are talking about it. And so if you don't hear about the harassment in your company, how could you possibly know that you have a reporting or even a harassment issue? So what we were hoping to do at Spot is to help that dialogue, help that discourse, so that people get that conversation started and they realize what's happening. How are you going to make money out of this service? So the companies that we want to work with and the companies who now are coming the other way, rather than us approaching them, they're approaching us, are companies who realize that this is a potential issue. They realize also the legal liability of not having a process like this in place. So it might seem scary on first thought that, oh, people can send me anonymous complaints. But wouldn't you rather know that someone is really upset about something or that something has happened? Wouldn't you rather be able to take steps to prevent that from escalating potentially to legal action because someone feels like they couldn't tell you? I mean, you showing on your end that you're taking active steps to hear from people and to fight harassment at your workplace is absolutely the best thing you could do right now from both a human perspective and a legal perspective. And so companies are now contacting us through our webpage, through TalkToSpot.com, and we don't have anything to sell yet, but we'll be selling the back end. We'll be selling a tool for businesses to manage incoming reports and respond effectively. There are a number of not-for-profit organizations who have created apps and bots to do something similar. What is unique about Spot? Spot is the only chatbot that's as extensive. It's one of the first on the space. It's one of the only, I think it is the only bot at this time that deals with all kinds of harassment and discrimination. So while right now sexual harassment sort of rolls off the tongue, it's easy to forget about all the other kinds of harassment and discrimination. And there's no reason why a tool can't capture all those different kinds of experiences. Because to me, certainly, it's important that we reach out and branch out this issue from a men versus woman issue. This isn't a tool for women. This is a tool for human beings, because sometimes human beings are harassed and they need somewhere to go. Do you think this could be used in schools as well? I mean, clearly, bullying at school is a very big issue. How broad do you think you could define this? I mean, would it be a product that could be used by children? Yeah, so we've been approached by lots of different organizations who we weren't expecting to approach us as well. So sort of this kind of tool is associated maybe with tech, because right now everyone's talking about tech and sexism and tech. Maybe Hollywood. We associate it maybe with academia. That's starting as well. But really, the kinds of organizations that are approaching us are things like corrections, city councils, service industry providers. 
incredibly diverse organizations. And certainly there's tremendous scope for branching out into both crime reporting and bullying and sort of other toxic workplace behaviors. Having gone to your site, it's very clear that you put an enormous amount of emphasis on privacy and data protection. How are you going to use the data for research purposes, though? I mean, clearly you have to give your consent for that to happen. But what do you hope to learn as a researcher out of the data that you're gathering? So Spot will always be free, but that's not because we keep your data. We don't keep any data that we don't have to. So the only data we actually keep right now is the time record of when you sent a report and who you sent it to. We don't keep the report itself. You can actually delete it yourself off our servers. And if you don't delete it, it automatically is deleted after 30 days. We are a team of scientists and we'll be doing empirical studies comparing Spot to, for example, traditional HR interviews and to, for example, sending yourself an email, so to note-taking, to make sure that what we are providing really is better, and if it's not, making it better than the alternatives. So right now, if you create a Spot report, you can send it to us, and we're creating a database because what we want to do is we want to look across those different reports and see the stories that people are telling us and see whether there are patterns to those stories and what that tells us about how we can potentially prevent harassment and discrimination going forward. A lot of the people we talk to on Tectonic have quite a negative view of technology or at least are raising concerns about how it is used. But I saw in relation to your product that when Phil Libin talked about this, he said, we really believe in the ability of tech to make people better humans. Do you believe that? I do. I think that AI should be seen at its best as an extension of the human experience. And I think that with Spot, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make science scalable and we're trying to use practical AI. So it's really a very direct application of basic AI, to be fair. It's not groundbreaking in terms of AI, but making scientific concepts and scientific methods accessible to a population who's maybe never before had access to it. And I think that's an absolutely amazing thing and the time is absolutely there that we can improve the world with the help of AI. Thank you very much, Julia. It's going to be fascinating to see how Spot evolves. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, then please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast app. And if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.